ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How do you capture the sound of a place so perfectly that it can make someone homesick? Or provoke nostalgia so acute that it brings another to tears? They're questions for Emika Ogbo, a multi-sensory artist whose antennae are finely tuned to the three layers of the sonic world, the natural, the animal and the human, and how they chorus together to create a sense of place. But the other senses, like taste, can be just as evocative. So how did Ogbo go from soundscapes of Lagos to distilling gin from botanicals that grow in West Africa and Tasmania? Daniel Browning here with the latest episode of The Art Show, coming to you from Arakal country, where us Bunjalung-speaking mobs say, Jingiwala, hello. Also, meet Jesse French, the artist and now inventor, using new and exciting bioplastics made out of algae. A lot of people associate plastics with petrochemical plastics, but an important distinction is a plastic is really just any material that can be moulded or formed. That's all coming up here on The Art Show. When or if you travel to a new country, what's the first thing that you notice? Before the temperature and the smells hit your senses, it's the sounds that tell you where you are or where you aren't. We live in a world that's noisier and more sonically complex than ever before. But when we're home, that noise is often blocked out through headphones, cars and earbuds that create a hermetic bubble between us and the outside. The artist, Emika Ogbo, bridges those sonic worlds and the cultures that compose them. He turned years of field recordings he made in his hometown of Lagos into atmospheric soundscapes. Portraits of a place that, when played in Helsinki, brought at least one fellow Nigerian to tears. Next, Emeka added music to the mix, releasing two critically acclaimed albums from his new home in Berlin. Now he's in Hobart and taking his global conversation around the experience of migration in the African diaspora and belonging to Lutruwita, Tasmania. When a person flees their home country due to war, it is not through any lack of love for their homeland. Erika, welcome to the art show. Thank you very much. Now, sound is one of the most transportative elements available to an artist. Tell me when you started recording your hometown, Lagos. Uh, this is probably around 2008, and it was after I came back from um, being part of a media class in Fayoum, Egypt, uh, in February 2008. The main focus was on sound. It was actually called uh, the audible spectrum. And um, that was really the first time I uh, sort of became more aware of sound as a medium, because when I think about sound, it's usually accompanied by film, or it's strictly music. But just to be aware that sound is an entity on its own, it's all around us in our environment, that media class uh, helped open up my ears and connection to sound. Then coming back to Lagos, which is a sound city, you know, <laughs> inevitably I just started recording out of curiosity. How would you describe the sound of Lagos? I mean, if we couldn't hear it, what are you hearing? You hearing bus conductors, you hearing the noise of parties on the street? The perfect description will be this multi-layered um, soundscapes. You know, there's a lot going on on it. You know, Lagos is a very um, 
kind of a, a audible city in the sense that we engage a lot with what we hear. So, and there are really no laws or rules, uh, you know, for uh, a level of sound or how you use sound or noise in the city. So basically everybody's on it from car horns to music uh, playing on the street, to hawkers on the street, to uh, bus conductors and the bus stations and stuff like that. It just keeps going on and on the whole day. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, Lagos, like everywhere else, I mean, there's three, essentially three layers uh, to an acoustic environment. Um, yeah. tell, tell me about the three layers. Well, I mean, uh, uh, you, you start with uh, the ones made by humans. You know, which is very typical in Lagos. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that going on there. Uh, there's a lot of vehicle activities, like I mentioned earlier, the horns. Or uh, there's a lot of uh, music playing. Typically, people will advertise uh, their restaurant or bar or whatever services they have by playing loud music. It kind of draws you to it. Uh, there's also the environmental sounds now and then. It's not. I mean, during rainstorms and stuff like that, that could have, that could be happening. And um, yeah, there are also sounds from animal. Not so much of this going on too. But I mean, it's basically made up of um, uh, human-made sounds, vehicles, um, music, people, um, and all that together. Yeah. So it's it's typical of an urban space, you know. And this, you can get the sense that this is a really crowded urban space because it transmits uh, to the soundscapes. Yeah. Mm. I don't know about you, but I love. Um, not that you can ever actually take human sound out of the environment, unfortunately. But there, there are, when I go to places like Lake Mungo, for instance, kind of a, uh, in southwestern New South Wales, basically um, almost like the near desert, the near outback, the sound of nothing there was really um, incredible to me. To be able to hear nothing, not even birds, just wind, yeah. that was extraordinary. Have you had that experience? I mean, I've, I've had these experiences. I mean, you really have to get out of Lagos, very far out of Lagos to be able to <laughs> feel that. Uh, but typically, you know, when we're talking about deserts now, you're talking about northern Nigeria. Uh, from the, In the southern Nigeria, you basically have uh, forests and stuff. So you're still surrounded by animal noise for sure. Uh, there's really no sound of silence in Lagos. It's impossible. You know, it doesn't exist. Uh, you probably have to have um, the, the anamorphomic rooms, those specially built rooms where there's silence for that, which is something I'm considering because the concept of silence is something a lot of people in Lagos do not know or cannot comprehend. So I'm actually imagining installing silence in that city in term, instead of... Wow. So my whole point is, um, yeah, it's uh, the sound of silence is definitely a sound on its own and it's something we're not used to. What comes close for me is being able, like I live between Germany and Nigeria, it's a different state of mind when I have to like be in Germany because, of course, there's a lot of sound ordinances and uh, you don't hear so much except for the government sound. And what I mean by this is like the sirens or the ambulance and stuff like that. Uh, typically, a uh, European city is quiet. So for me, it's like moving down from it. Full of ordinances. To like a hundred decibels, you know. So I get a feel of what it means to be close to silence. Not entirely silent, but close to it. But at the same time, it's this big switch that happens to me. And I remember earlier when I started living in Europe, it did affect my sleep because I'm not used to sleeping in a quiet place. You know what I mean? And for for a long time, I was wondering what's wrong. But then I kind of coded that it's, it comes from the sound ambience where it's almost quiet. 
you know. There's not a lot happening in the It's not a lot happening, exactly. So this sort of affects uh, you mentally. Like for you that is not used to that cacophony in Lagos, if you go to Lagos, it will be hard for you to fall asleep with all that sound happening around <laughs> you. All that sound. Vice versa for someone coming from that side, you know. So it's interesting how sound kind of impacts us, affects us as human beings. And it's this thing I have to like switch between two places all the time and have my brain ready for it, you know. Yeah. When did you start to think of sound as, as something that could could touch people, could draw them in emotionally? When did when did that kind of sense of, of the capacity of sound, the potential of sound? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, my engagement with sound started around 2008. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I just found it interesting that I could go out in the streets of Lagos, record the sounds, and I'm back in my studio listening and hearing things that I didn't hear while out there on the street. But I think uh, a lot of that started happening, and I started putting these Lagos soundscapes online, and then I'll have people like write me to say, oh, I live in Chicago, it's cold, it's great, I'm, I'm lonely. You know, like he's, 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 a, he's a Nigerian that went studying abroad, kind of situation and um, and they tell me like they connect with home by you know going to SoundCloud and playing my Lagos soundscape off the internet on speakers in their dine, in their kitchen while they're cooking and stuff like that it connects them back to that place and you know that was when I started kind of thinking a lot about how this kind of worked uh, with people because yes I felt that but when you hear it from other people, it makes more sense. So I think this probably started, this should be around 2010-ish, because like I said, I started recording in 2008, and I started putting it out there more often in 2009. And when I started having all this feedback, it would probably be around 2010. And that um, led me to being more open to feedback from people in terms of how uh, they connect with the sound and what the sound does for them. And I did have different encounters, especially when we put up the sound somewhere in you know somewhere that is not Lagos, especially in Europe, and having the Nigerians, especially the students that haven't been home for a long time, come up to us uh, in the inst- during the installation or when the installation is up to say, listen, you know, this transports me back home all the time. I have to come here every day and get my home fixed, basically. So this made me more aware or more conscious about how sound sort of um, will transport people from one place to the other. And when I started living abroad, for me, it was the same. Like sometimes that kind of feeling of nostalgia or homesickness, I would just mm-hmm. play Lagos sounds for myself and get transported back immediately. And this mm-hmm. finally influenced my music when I started making music too. Yeah, I mean, it would obviously, you know, in relation to the sounds of Lagos, you were also coming into contact with the Af- African di- diaspora and how, how, how massive that diaspora is. I think there was, a, yeah. there was a moment in Helsinki, you were part of a group show in 2011, I think, and there was a man who was um, quite emotional about um, about, um, that, about that, that encounter did change exactly that encounter was very profound for me not just this man it was very profound for me because um, uh, prior to that a lot of my sound installations was really looking at the concept of migration you know like uh, transporting sound from a different place to another and what would be the reaction of the locals to something strange you know uh, I wouldn't say the reactions were always entirely positive you know these are like people who used to quiet ambience and suddenly for a couple 
couple of days or weeks there, uh, you know, the city soundscape gets overtaken by this very uh, weird, I would say weird because they don't understand what is really going on there. They, they are not used to having all these multi-layers of traffic and music and people happening at the same time. So they did find it quite cacophonous. But um, what it was interesting was when this came up in Helsinki that same day, this man was a student. Uh, he, he's been in... Um, Helsinki for three, four years. He hasn't gone home since he came as a student. He has, uh, he's holding down one or two jobs. So he's between working and studying. And I think he was really, the pressure was piling up. So this particular day, he heard, he heard the sound of Lagos, basically. You know, he's used to coming to take his um, bus from the same place every day. And suddenly, this particular day, He's hearing sound that is familiar with, but in a strange place, like, you know, where the sound is not supposed to be. And I remember, according to his words, like, I'm hearing Lagos and I'm looking around me, I'm just surrounded by, you know, all these white people and this sound is going on. There's no connection at all. So he thought he was hallucinating. He thought so many things. He actually thought um, uh, he was being a kind of, um, you know, like they're trying to draw him back home since he hasn't been home for a while. But um, yeah, I was called to say, oh, there's someone that wanted to see you. And I didn't understand why when I came downstairs from my installation and this guy practically hugged me, held me, was very emotional. And it's like, listen, you know, like I haven't been home in a long time. This really uh, blew my mind, you know, and I actually thought I was going crazy when I first heard it. But I was able to trace it to the museum. And I was like, listen, I'm going to be home this Christmas. And actually he did come back and give me a call like, listen, I'm in Lagos and stuff like that. So yeah, that that was a uh, quite a profound moment for me because I never thought about how people that are familiar with the sound would engage with it when they hear it in a place where it's not supposed to be, you know. So that brought me my attention more to that too. Yeah, I mean Lagos to Helsinki, I can imagine it was it's quite quite well, quite jarring. <laughs> Tell me about the process of deep listening, which I'm I'm fascinated by because we have a practice here among Blackfellas, Indigenous people. We practice uh, this thing called deep listening, and I've I've been yeah. in, involved with it for for some years, uh, curating yeah. um, deep listening experiences. Actually, yeah, I mean it's more like actively or consciously paying attention to what you're hearing, rather than like stumbling upon it, but like seeking it out to actively mm-hmm. dive into it and engage with it, uh, actively paying attention. And I, you know, like I, I kind of mentioned this a lot during my practice, which I also did, but where I kind of feel the impact more was when I started making music and my process always starts with finding excerpts of my recording and just, you know, putting on a noise cancellation headphone and listening to it repeatedly over time, a very long period of time. This could happen for weeks. It's not like I'm listening nonstop for weeks, but, you know, I just actively pay attention, dive into the sound. No other sound is seeping in here. I'm sitting in my studio in Berlin, listening to pure Lagos, you know, with no uh, Berlin influences coming in repeatedly till a beat starts forming within this whole uh, active listening session or deep listening session. This is how I kind of, this is the beginning of the journey for me making my, my, my music process. So it starts with deep listening. And then, I, you know, for me, it was something that I engaged more when I started making music for it to lead me 
or to inspire me to make music. And this is how we come back to that whole idea of the city as a composer. What I mean by that statement is, you know, uh, like uh, for me, I'm not, I'm documenting what the city is composing and the city is composing whatever is composing based on the rules and ordinances that guide it. You know, in Europe, when you're using your car horns, you could get fined. When you're playing loud music, you could get fined. If you're having a party, your neighbors could call the police. So this is how the city has been set up to compose, not to have access to so much stuff to put out there as a composition contrary to Lagos where where this is not a problem so you're going to hear more stuff out there because the city is composing based on how it's been designed to compose this is not just the infrastructures that are set in place for this but also the rules and ordinances that guide the city so this is uh, my take on that basically yeah so I guess the rules and ordinances of a city might be, um, you know, when you're crossing a, a, a pedestrian crossing in Australia, we have a sound. A yes, for the, for the yeah, blind, like, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it becomes exactly. part of the oral landscape. It's, it's, exactly. it's something that you, exactly. would, you would hear in any Australian city. Exactly. And then the partic- particular sound of an Australian siren as opposed to a French siren, um, they're quite distinct. Um, so, yeah, all these those rules and ordinances create, um, you know, composition. contribute composition. to what the, yeah, yeah. there's some composition. Yeah. Yeah, and everyday a composition, yes, uh, endless totally. composition. Now, yeah. what took you to Berlin, where you? I think you had trouble sleep. You said you had trouble sleeping because <laughs> it was so quiet. Um, what, what took you to Berlin? Uh, this, you know, I, I moved to Berlin for a one-year residency with the DAAD. That practically kind of uh, took me to living in Berlin. Prior to that, I've been traveling to Berlin because, um, if you know Berlin pretty much, it's uh, it's it, you know, there's there's a big it's a very active sound and music community in Berlin. There's a lot of um, uh, stuff happening around uh, sound and music festivals and all that. So for me, working with sound in Nigeria, where no one, you know, I didn't have access to how the sounds are being kind of exhibited. I had to travel a lot to see these shows to understand more what I'm doing. But uh, traveling to a place for a while is not the same with living in a place. So when I went to... When I went to uh, when I started the residency in 2014, it was more like it was more intense for me. Like I had to live there, and I had to like experience this all the time. The situation where um, I was having problems sleeping because of the quiet environment that I'm now living in. So yes, I, I moved to Berlin, or I went to Berlin for the DAD residency in 2014 to 2015. Yeah. Now you work for MoMA in New York called Lagos State of Mind, which you referred to earlier. Uh, actually, yes. com- actually combines the sound of both Lagos and Berlin. How did you capture the what, what I was talking about before too? The the migrant experience, the the, the African diaspora experience. Yeah, I mean, um, put, putting that piece together, that was like one of my first works that brought these two places together. Like I said, I was shuttling between Lagos and Berlin, and after a while, it was this question of how are these two places influencing your works. That's what Lagos State of Mind 3 is all about. It's not just the sound, but also the objects and visuals that I place there. I mean, it's kind of a long piece to discuss, but uh, when it talks to capturing the the sound of the African diaspora, uh, I, I had that question a lot. How do you capture that? So one of the things I did, I was recording a, a German language class for Africans. So basically it was this uh, class where um, a lot of uh, African students were learning German and then you could hear the accent you could hear yeah, them trying yeah. to speak German you could also hear the English or even the words in their native languages that for me was that kind of um, environment that could produce 
when you talk about African diaspora, Africans living abroad, learning a new language. So that was part of the mix for this uh, artwork, uh, which combines music, combines soundscapes, recordings from both cities, and then this uh, language classes to kind of signify being abroad and learning a new language. Yeah. Now, you're in, you're in Hobart, uh, but your work there started uh, last year. What did you know of the yes. place? What did you know of Hobart and, and Tasmania? And what, what, what kind of work did you want to make? I mean, I have to be honest with you, Australia, Tasmania is so far out. Like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to jump on, like, this is just the exotic thing we know, but when we think about this <laughs> a lot, you think about kangaroos and stuff like that. So um, when I was invited to visit here, typically what I try to do is not to get so much information, especially online, like Lonely Planets and the rest, what to do with Hobart and stuff. I rather, like, kind of prefer diving into it from zero in as much as possible. I mean, of course, there are certain researches you make before coming, but I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do here when I came. And, you know, uh, my work explores migration. I do a lot of sound works, but in the last couple of years, I've started experimenting or working with all the five senses. And uh, I found that taste or food is really one of the main issues with migration. And so a lot of my work around migration kind of is around the concept of taste. So um, coming to Hobart, I'll start with really my very first breakfast in the Hobart at the Salamanca market was um, oysters and gin. You know, I noticed there were a lot of uh, gin stands there. Sorry, that sorry, sort of sorry, sorry. Uh, oysters and yeah. gin. Oysters and gin, yeah, that's kind of a complicated breakfast, but yeah, I think uh, it really worked for the jet lag. But it's just, um, it was the oyster season, and um, there were a lot of uh, gin stands here. It's That drew me to the fact that there are a lot of distilleries, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. doing stuff here. And I really kind of realized that they were paying a lot of attention to the botanicals from around the area and trying to, you know, put it out there as much as uh, possible in terms of the gene flavor. So that drew my attention to that. If I'm going to create something around migration involving tests, I, th- I thought that gene would be the best way to preserve a lot of these botanicals and flavors that could come from um, West Africa and fusing with Tas- uh, Tasmania too. You know, this wasn't there at the beginning, but these are part of the things that led um, me to producing this work especially working with gene for the first time um yeah so coming here migration is uh, a global phenomenon i was interested in uh the diaspora especially the african diaspora here like you know you're you're a long way from home how did you end up here and stuff like that just getting more involved with them researching and talking with them led to me realizing you know migration it's, it's a big topic here in terms of how uh, migrants will be treated or if there are laws uh, from Australia that sort of uh, kind of makes it more complicated for them. But these are things you get from the feedback in, uh, you know, having conversations with people. And this sort of channeled my idea to finally producing this work, which is around migration, but kind of departs from taste too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the case that study that you completed in another country study that you worked for paid for spent time on invested in is not recognized in Australia now you met um, an outstanding member of the Tasmanian community a Sierra Leone uh, refugee advocate tell me about John Kamara 
Oh man, John is. Uh, I mean, uh, how do you how do you start? You know, his stories are quite profound. Like uh, I remember meeting John over dinner, and he's talking about his experience. You know, he's like a a war uh, refugee, basically. You know, uh, he lost family members. He came to Australia. It's, it's it's you know his life is full of struggles, but it's that kind of beautiful struggle that ends up with someone. You know, John is a prominent member of the, uh, you know, the diaspora committee, but also like Tasmania itself. You know, he sees himself as a Tasmanian. Tasmanian, uh, he was, Tasmanian of Tasmanian, the year. A Tasmanian of the year. So, you know, seeing that these are like one of those stories that needs to be out there. You know, like a lot of people, people fear what they don't know, or what they don't understand, and they will not even engage to understand. So hearing just stories of how he came from zero to where he is right now, I thought it would be quite a, an interesting part of what I'm, whatever I'm going to make, but I didn't know exactly how I wanted to work with John. But in the process of making this gene and trying to create works around the gene in terms of advertising the, pro, the product, I thought it would be a good idea to create a sound installation which kind of uh, uh, involves a lot of uh, uh, electroacoustic composition, but then infusing John's speech you know, he made the speech um, telling the story about his life and his accomplishments, you know, from, from, from where he started to where he is today. And it was a way to, I found a way to incorporate it into the music that I was creating for the installation to have more people hear this. I think people should hear the story more often, you know. Not every migration story is kind of, this negative or bad stories or what people should be afraid of. This is a typical example of a successful uh, uh, story, basically. So, um I had to incorporate that into this work, yeah. When you were talking about, you know, bringing the sounds of Lagos and then listening to them, to them in Berlin in the studio, yeah. absolutely, I feel the same. Like when I, when I used to make documentaries and features, radio features, yeah. I would be sitting with the same audio for months. And I'm not unusual among my colleagues, this, this is common practice. <laughs> but you'd be sitting with the same audio and working out yeah. how to, what to do, where to... You know, did, did it need some, you know, um, reverb there? Like, a, what, why doesn't it sound sound right? You know, and labouring over every single second. <laughs> um, that, that's crazy. The, 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 but it was it was it's the it, same. It's the same. It's the same process for me. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot embedded in sound that is not so obvious. Maybe at the beginning, but like you t you 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 put it on loop, listening over and over, and it starts revealing itself. And honestly, you can still come back to the same piece that you think you've kind of uh, 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 really like uh, seen or heard, like you've heard everything in it. Then you hear something new too. You know what I mean? This is this is the beauty of sound for me. It's it keeps giving. You know, it keeps giving basically. Yeah. I guess that must have been the the material that was recorded by the ABC, the archival material. I guess would be vox pops of people saying, "Oh, you know, we don't want yes. we don't want black people here or whatever." Oh, they actually want. I mean, it's not it's not it wasn't it wasn't all negative. That's what I mean by that. I'm not trying to like lean on just the negativity. Well, what kind, what was the flavor? Of, what was the flavor of those? Um, it it was quite it was quite a it was quite a it wasn't very optimistic. Let's put it like that. You know, a lot of it was negative, but you just realize a lot had to do with ignorance or like fear of the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen if all these people are suddenly here. You know, and of course, the politicians, we push these narratives. It's also a way to get votes and stuff like that. So it's always this kind of propaganda leaning um, narratives that will put people in perpetual fear. And this was what we had in mind. As a fear of the other, you know, that's what we had in mind when we created this gene. This gene basically seamlessly fused Tasmanian and West African flavors into this 
I mean, everybody said the gin was good. You should try it. <laughs> and it's not just making the gin. I also work with uh, Vince Stream uh, from the Mona Restaurants. Um, he designed a menu with the flavors we had in the gin. So last night was the feast for this. And he pulled it off brilliantly. They never worked with this uh, strange West African botanicals, but they were able to uh, accept this challenge and pulled it off brilliantly, fusing these two places, Tasmania and West Africa. Same with Vince. Vince pulled it off brilliantly too. He never worked with these flavors before and sort of now bringing it uh, onto the table, like a full menu that will be retained at the Mona restaurants. It's amazing. So if this can happen, you know, why can't we humans pull this off to you, you know? Emeka, thank you so much for being my guest here on The Art Show. It's been fascinating to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, yeah. Emeka is out here for Mona Foma, and you can hear, see, and taste his new work at venues across Hobart. I'm Daniel Browning. This is The Art Show. When he was a teenager, the street artist Jess Wright took to tagging and graffiti to disrupt the omnipresent advertising in his inner-city neighbourhood. But unlike many of his mates, Jess Wright turned his art form into a career. It's led to gallery commissions, community murals of Indigenous heroes, and ironically, advertising. His latest art project is for Science Gallery Melbourne, and he's the artist behind this week's My Thing. My name is Jess Wright, and my thing is a chickenosaurus. I feel like disruptiveness is is built into my DNA, if I'm honest. Like, it sounds quite quirky and stuff, but for me, I've always been... I've been a button pusher since I was a kid, and it's just developed into my, um, into my adult art career compared to my childhood art career. Really early on, it could be from seeing a packet of cigarettes from my mum and throwing them in the toilet, or it could be going out at 14 to go paint trains, or it could be getting a big ACAB tattoo on my ribs, you know what I mean? Like, it, I have disruptiveness built into everything I do and to the point where it's dictated my career. I've been working for myself for over 10 years now. Comparatively, I've been fired from over 17 jobs. I haven't been able to fire myself yet. I attempt to stop someone in their tracks and keep their attention, which on paper sounds easy. In practice, it's quite difficult. I started graffiti around 14. For me, graffiti, like, it started at 14, but I was always just good at drawing, and I was surrounded by my friends who who were the cool kids in, in school, but I was like, I'll sit at the front of the class because I, you know, I actually liked learning. Um, so graffiti, ironically enough, actually disrupted my learning, set me off on a path from about 14 up until, up until now. Like, I still find myself just tagging on shit whenever I can. But that's also part of the reason why I'm unpacking it for academics as well. A few of the core reasons why people do graffiti, there's a few reasons. One of them is like a state of experience. I'm here, I'm alive, this is my spot, which bleeds into another reason why people do graffiti, which is it's about real estate. It's about having nothing and occupying something so that you can have something, which breeds territorialness. Territor- yeah, we'll go with that one, territorialness. You have, uh, you have a bunch of like rowdy teenage boys. It's like a boys club, it's weird. I don't like it and I never have. I feel like for me, even while doing it, I found parts about it which I didn't like. It definitely is a misogynist um, hobby for a lot of a lot of graffiti writers. So graffiti now as like a 33-year-old bloke wandering through Melbourne, I see it as advertising. So graffiti for me is unpaid advertising. You can run 
a billboard for McDonald's on the side of a train, but if someone was to paint the train with their name on it, they'll get arrested and thrown in jail. But the only difference is that someone's actually paid for it. There's definitely irony in the fact that I've, like, not only jumped into advertising, but I think it's probably more full circle that I've left as well. My first commercial gig was about 2012. Um, it was a project for Nokia. But it opened up more doors for me mentally, not quite socially, but m more mentally knowing that, oh, I'm a graffiti artist that can actually make money off this. I can turn this into something as opposed to some of the people I was around at the time doing graffiti. They're either dead, overdosed, and they're stuck in where they're doing, or they're heavily traumatised, or they've completely lived different lives. They know they're no longer associated with anything art-based. You know, they're probably a tradie or something. I grew up in Gadigal country, around Lewisham to Burwood. That's where me and my mum are from. A lot of, uh, a lot of my mum's historical connections to our Indigenous heritage are based around there and based around Waterloo. She's a Gadigal woman, part of the Stolen Generation. And um, something I'm still quite unpacking as well. I painted trains and I painted like walls when I was doing graffiti, but it didn't actually hit the things I wanted to hit. I kind of got over writing my name as much as I wanted to. So I started just going, oh, I can paint characters, I can do portraits. Upscaling for me is actually quite easier because it's the larger you go, the less pressure it is on how clean you need to be. The community aspect of, of murals is something that's that should be really ingrained, but it doesn't have to be ingrained in the way that communities install the murals. Storytelling is, is such a big part of my mural practice. Um, even the commercial gigs, I still hide so much of my personal story in my murals and I hide it in a way that, that you can't really tell there's a story there. I have to explain it. I like the ambiguity of it, of people not being able to figure out what I'm, what I'm saying. The, the mural of Senator Lydia Thorpe was, was, a, was a real interesting one because I painted that over two days. I didn't bother asking council permission because I knew it was just going to be more of a, a headache. But... Um, I asked permission of Nico's on the side and I painted it in over two days and it was a love job. I've just installed a mural at, um, at the Science Gallery. The concept of Chickenosaurus is actually quite interesting as well. So it's basically trying to say, we've had the technology to create Jurassic Park for a while. What would it look like if we did? I, I spent time on, on AI. I spent, I think I created over 200 over 200 mutant animals just with AI and I amalgamated maybe a few of them together. Um, I was using Midjourney to create them. Um, I've spent the last two years on, on AI just messing around and learning and integrating myself and, and adopting it um, and, and equally educating as well. I, I teach at RMIT and part of the RMIT system is to be able to adopt AI into their practice and not shy away from it. The concept of Chickenosaurus it's a different way of, of challenging the way people think, but it's still creating conversations in a way that can be a bit, a little bit less serious. All I really want to do is just have people interact with, with art and be inspired. Jess Rye. You can see his Chickenosaurus at the exhibition Not Natural at Melbourne University Science Gallery. Muhammad. The ABC presents a new drama series that takes you behind the walls of the sacred. Baba, I should be your VP. You put yourself above the almighty creator. And into a story of family, love, secrets and betrayals at a Sydney mosque. Love's not a bank loan, Asa. Never needs to be repaid. The ABC's groundbreaking new drama, House of Gods.
Sunday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Throughout history, artists have spread their work over into the territory of the inventor. Just think of the development of pigments or dyes, our understanding of anatomy, mechanical flight, and photography. Jesse French straddles both these worlds too. Jesse's an artist and a modern material designer, working with seaweed to make both artworks and a new type of plastic, which she hopes could one day replace one of the more polluting petrochemical types like PVC. The art show's Rosa Allen visited her Melbourne studio. We're in your studio slash laboratory. It really is divided in two. You have like art section it looks like and then you have this space where you've got tools and stoves and things cooking. Yeah, there is very much um, the, the cooking process. Um, I, I make uh, polymers that are, that are made from algae and um, polymer is just a, a technical term for a molecular structure that's a long chain and they form plastics when they're made into things. A lot of people associate plastics with petrochemical plastics but an important distinction is a plastic is really just any material that can be moulded or formed. And because of the uh, availability and uh, prolific nature of, of petrochemical plastics, it's become shorthand. But before the Industrial Revolution, before petrochemical plastics really became as widespread as they are, plastic just meant any moulded material. So plastics don't have to be made from petrochemicals. They don't need to be made from fossil fuels and they don't need to be made from materials that are, or ingredients that aren't renewable or sustainable. So I, I work with algae, um, fresh algaes that have been processed and um, extract a polymer from them and then I use that to make plastics. And you, you describe that algae as new algae that your polymers, your bioplastics are made from new algae. Can you tell me a bit about why you make that distinction? Yeah, so um, new algae, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily mean like market fresh or picked from the ocean this morning. Um, but the distinction I'm making is um, really to draw attention to the, the fact that petrochemical plastics are made from fossils and those fossils are actually algae. Um, so those very, very ancient, ridiculously ancient, like billions of years ancient fossils are, form an oil after millions and millions of years of being under high pressure and high heat. And that oil can be processed into plastics or it can be used as oil to fuel cars and things like that. But I think when you reflect on the fact that that's actually a fossil, you know, if we find a fossil from... A thousand years ago, that's, you know, that's very exciting. If we find one from a million years ago, that's also, you know, revered and, and treasured. But, you know, we're using these fossils that are maybe billions of years old uh, for throwaway objects. Yeah. So I'm using new algae as opposed to very, very ancient fossilised algae. What form of the, is the new algae that you're working with in? Like you said, it's not, you know, freshly plucked from the ocean. But where do you, do you have it in the studio? I'm using uh, an algae that is really commonly used in laboratories and in food in a form that's, that's commonly called agar or agar agar. So it doesn't actually grow in Australia or we haven't identified yet any types of seaweed that have this ability to form a polymer. 
So it's, uh, there are a couple of types. Um, Dulidium and Gracilaria are the, the genuses that are most used. So Dulidium has, um, is usually processed into your bacteriological agars, the ones you'll find at the bottom of a petri dish in, in laboratories. And um, Gracilaria is, is more commonly used for your food-grade ones that you might find in Thai desserts, but it's also in a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't realise, like tomato sauce, some ice creams, sometimes face creams. Anyone who's vego will know that agar agar is the... The vegetarian gelatin. Absolutely, yeah. So both, both. Um, what's really going on there is um, is a molecular, like a very nice cross-linking of things um, when it goes through that heating process, and you, you'll recognise that gel. What I'm doing is really making, finding a way to to kind of get that dry so that it can become a plastic. It's actually processed much like you would make a chicken stock or a vegetable stock. So. The seaweed is, um, and the, the places where it really comes from, most of the world comes from Morocco. The pictures that I, I referred to on the wall before are pictures that I took in Morocco. Um, so that's where most of the world's agar comes from. It also comes from Japan, off the coast of Korea, um, and they have very long histories with it. And, and so is it grown in coastal areas? or Yeah, coastal areas. It's not, um, there's no, no places that I know that have been able to, to farm it yet. So it's grown in the ocean. Oh, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah, it, uh, it, it needs the cool water and it really likes the ocean currents. So it's been a tricky one to, to produce anywhere else. Um, and that's where sustainability really comes into play because you, you're dealing with a, an ecosystem and it's, you know, it's, it's wild and it's just in its, in its natural form, not farmed. So... Part of my research in Morocco was really looking at those supply chains and finding out what was happening. It's either picked from the intertidal zone where it's it's kind of washed up, it's it's you know naturally come off, and there are some harvesters that will dive for it as well. Then it's dried out, uh, goes through a washing process just to get all the salt and the sand off it, and then it goes to the processing plant. In Morocco, there's only one, and they do most of the world's agar. So that's. Uh, you know, a significant portion of it comes from this one factory in Morocco. Essentially, kind of like you would make a stock, it all goes into a big pot that gets cooked, you know, boiled and in the water. And then at a certain point, basically your solids come out. So in a stock, at a certain point, you'd take your, you know, your chicken bones or you'd take your vegetables out and then you, um, you'd work on that, the broth. In this case, that broth just gets, you know, completely... Um, cooked dry, and then you end up with like flakes or a powder. Um, and that's what I use. That's what makes the polymer. Our general knowledge of seaweeds is very limited. Um, you know, most people will recognize like a sea lettuce or something. Um, I was thinking of sea lettuce. Yeah, it doesn't look like a sea lettuce. So it's a red, red seaweed. There um, uh, are three different main colors of seaweeds. There are browns and reds and greens. And um, the, the seaweeds that make the agar are red seaweeds. And they kind of look like um, a stereotypical kind of branching tree without any leaves. So all of those little branches coming off it um, in a bit of a like wide hand form. I'm making a very wide hand form with my hand. Um, and then, yeah, those little branches and it's red. That's kind of what it looks like. We're looking here at some works spread out on a table, huge sheets of a plastic. It's this sort of transparent, ready, you know what, it reminds me of a fruit leather. That is, a lot of people have that association, yes. It's very thin, um, thin, kind of shiny plastic. It does look like a fruit leather, absolutely. <laughs> 
you're an, officially an inventor, which we'll get to yes. later. Tell me about how you first entered this whole realm of working with, with agar, agar and, and, and thinking about materials. What is overwhelming uh, in most of our lifetimes at the moment is that we've got some real issues with the state of the planet and the way that we're using materials. If you've read any IPCC report, it's arresting. You're just kind of overwhelmed by the glum outlook and the inaction by governments, by people that really need to be doing more. And it can really feel like it's hard to have hope. We know that our individual efforts can't really make a dent in um, the problems that we're facing. And so my practice really started with like a desire to, to try and do something and to look at ways to move forward, to have, to have some hope, but also to kind of try and, and think about what, uh, what a future could look like without petrochemical plastics. So that's really where it started. Was it from a disgust with landfill and single-use plastics? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it started off with just knowing that there was a real big issue. And the more that I've looked into it, you know, the, the other thing is that when you're talking about petrochemical plastics, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of different materials. It's, you know, they're grouped into a, um, a title but, um, or a category, but, but there's so many. So um, one thing that I looked into a lot, especially being an artist, is, uh, you know, when you have an exhibition, there's often some wall text or like some little, you know, something on the glass that really introduces the show and, and we'll have, you know, some titles about it. The material that that is used to make that kind of sticker on the wall or the, the vinyl lettering is um, PVC vinyl. And that is one of the most uh, widely used types of plastic, but it's also horrendously toxic. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, the place where it's produced in America is um, in Louisiana. It's called Cancer Alley. People that live around those factories are usually, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic. They're usually um, racial minorities as well, especially in the US. So um, there's some real, you know, ethical things that we need to consider more in these materials. Once they get to us, that 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 vinyl, um, those decals are also um, off-gassing. So they give off their chloride-based plastic. The, the C and the PVC is chloride. Uh, it's so toxic that in museums and galleries, they won't actually, they're not actually allowed to put it near the collection items because the, the off-gassing can degrade the object. It just continues to be toxic. It's whole life cycle. It's awful. The term inventor I've recently recently learned is um, is applied to, to someone that holds a patent, um, and so I, I applied for a provisional patent for this uh, in January, which is very exciting. Is this this is the new algae alternative that you've to PVC that you have been developing? Yes. So um, so that was something that as an artist, you know, outside of my my other work, um, you know, using these materials in other ways, I also wanted to find a replacement for these decals because. I couldn't keep using them after knowing all that I know. Part of my work uh, was, you know, just this experimental space, but the material ended up being quite successful and um, I, I feel a responsibility to apply it and to actually have, you know, the walk the walk of the, you know, the practice. So uh, I have a, another side to my practice called Other Matter, which is the vehicle for um, really applying and using the skills and um, innovations that I've developed, you know, as part of my artistic practice, but extending them into the real world and um, uh, opening up the availability to other people to use that. 
this one, um, this one was actually one that was originally produced for, for ESOP. So um, it, it is an artistic commission, but it also uses the decal uh, methodology. So um, they're up in their stores all around Australia and New Zealand at the moment. Um, and they, they're kind of an artistic, well, they are, they're, they're an artistic patterning um, that is quite uh, distinctive in my work, but they're also cut into shapes that, uh, that match some of their branding. Um, I wanted to ask you about your vessels. This is sort of what you started in. You know, you've won awards for them. The material is sort of more similar to what you'd probably think of as a, as a dried kelp material, but it is actually also made of vega agar, right? It's not, it's not a sheet of, of seaweed. It's, no, yeah, it's a material that you've, you've made and then moulded. They're incredibly beautiful, transparent. The colours are reminiscent of, of plants, but I suppose they're made with dyes. Yeah, some of them are actually made with algae, algae dyes. Um, <laughs> so um, some of them, these kind of orangey ones over there, um, the colouring comes from Daneliella uh, Selena, which is um, the, you might know it from Pink Lakes. So it's the algae that makes those lakes pink. It's also the algae that gives flamingos their colour because they eat it. Um, and so that makes a really, it's a, makes a beta carotene that gives it that colour. This feels very kind of Willy Wonka. It looks like a bucket of multicolour fruit leather. Yes. Oh, I do want to almost <laughs> eat one. I didn't go to art school, um, but I did probably more study in the history of science. And I think that really comes through in the practice. Like it's very much informed by a lot that I've learned about the history of scientific um, you know, I guess I, invention is like a strange word. Discovery is a strange word. You know, uh, lots of things happen at the same time. And, you know, every everything that we learn is really based on prior knowledge of, of a whole bunch of things. So, um, you know, inventor is like a strange, strange word. There's a lot of scientific discovery that really happened as a result of um, what you could classify as a creative practice. There's a lot of philosophers of science looking at scientific practice um, as like, influence of choreography or influence of, of drawing or painting, you know, the, these things are, you know, really what you're doing is seeing. Um, you know, this distinction of art and science is also relatively new and it's very Western. They really are, particularly in my practice, they don't, there's no distinction. It's just what I'm doing. Sorry, I can't really overestimate also the, the aesthetic value and beauty in your artworks. It's not like you've come up with a material that's great, but it's kind of ugly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're making things that really make the most of the material. Do you feel like you were always, always had a sort of inventor's streak? Were you cooking things up when you were a kid? Or? I probably, I guess I've always been quite interested in different things. Um, uh, my... One of one of my moms when I was young was was studying um, neurobiology, and I apparently requested that as as bedtime reading. Um, like a textbook, <laughs> the textbook, other papers. Um, they were very effective as bedtime reading. Apparently, I fell asleep quite quickly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I've I've been interested in in how things work. Um, but I, you know, you don't really set out to be an inventor. I didn't even really know what this was, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how you got to that point. Uh, what's beautiful about the material is because it's, it's formed in a liquid state and what I capture in my works is 
is kind of this patterning that's very reminiscent of a lot of what could be um, a natural system. So, you know, some people will see like, you know, a, a star system and I guess we're living in times where we're able to see these beautiful images coming back from like the James Webb telescope and they they really are, you know, they're similar, like they're swirly and, you know, you can really see a lot of depth in them. Um, you know, they also look like ocean currents, you know, it also looks like maybe um, microscopic images of things like this. So it, it's really reminiscent of these natural systems and um, and I guess providing the same kind of perspective that you might get when you look at like a, a very natural thing um, or, or a scene, you know, the... Um, very interestingly, there's actually uh, been research on the way your brain processes images, and when you're like when you're actually looking around an urban scene at you know buildings and things like that, versus when you're looking you know at a, a just natural you know vista of like a mountain or whatever, just not with buildings, um, your brain actually processes it differently. Um, so we're we're doing more work to actually look at these. Um, human-made environments in our brains. Um, so I think... So do you think there's a sort of exhaustion that comes with that? Yeah, there is. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a documented exhaustion or there's a documented um, higher energy load on mm. your higher mental load in, um, in, you know, looking at these human-made environments. It's, I mean, yeah, it seems absolutely obvious now that <laughs> I think about it. I think when you, when you look at uh, some of the patterning in the work, you know, it, it does have this much more organic feel. Um, you know, it's also, I guess, it's capturing really time um, frozen in a moment because mm. you do get this kind of, uh, you can see the inertia and you can see the, the, the moments of, like, speed and time and, and movement. So there's one thing in my work which is, you know, uh, making this artistic work which originated in this project to think about what a post-petrochemical world could look like. But what I have actually made is capable of, of making some inroads into that actual post-petrochemical world. So um, the other side to my practice is the applied side, other matter, um, and it, is, it acts as the custodian to these materials and the skills and knowledge that I've built up. Um, and I, I really feel a responsibility to, to not just keep this within my own mm. practice, but to actually apply it and, um, and see, it into, see it into replacing some of these um, particularly toxic plastics where I can. Jessie French speaking with producer Rosa Ellen. Jessie's experimental design studio is called Other Matter. Find links to her on the Art Show program page. That's it for this week. You can email us at theartshow at abc.net.au. The Art Show is produced by Rosa Ellen. Thanks to sound engineer Angie Grant. I'm Daniel Browning. I'll catch you next time here on The Art Show.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.